Hi there, and welcome to the Wayback Music Machine podcast, the show that takes a light-hearted look at the week that was in rock and roll history. Good morning, Mr. Badgley. Good morning, Mr. Stewart, and how are you today? Well, I am doing fantastic, but you just celebrated a birthday, my friend. I thank you very much. Yeah, what a what a what a year this has been. Liverpool uh, going to retire, your retirement, and uh, birthdays. I'll tell you, it's just been too much. Well, and you know what? In uh, honor of your birthday, because of your advancing years, uh, we've decided to bring <laughs> uh, Geritol on as a sponsor. So, well, you know, <laughs> it's I, it's it's definitely appreciated. And, and I could. Where's my bottle? Where's my bottle? <laughs> I am I am just kidding, of course, folks. But uh, you know, seriously, yeah, if Geritol wanted to pony up some cash and sponsor the show, I wouldn't. Uh, just about anybody. Just about anybody. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're going. Uh, well, we're doing quite a trip today. We're visiting a few cities I don't think that we've ever been to before. We're going to Cincinnati and no, Vancouver. Good, good, good baseball team. Yeah. And uh, Vancouver is on the list. And then, of course, almost always, or every episode or every second episode, we end up over in London and we're going to be visiting London as well. How but, can you do? London's kind of like the epicenter, isn't it? Oh, it is. Absolutely. I would say it seems to be the epicenter even more than New York City for this show, wouldn't you? Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. And possibly Liverpool, but we'll, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's get started. So folks, uh, buckle up and we'll be right back. So for our first stop, we're going to wander outside the lines a little bit. This is a typically a rock and roll history show, but sometimes we do cross over and we're crossing over into the country music world. We're going to Cincinnati and we're talking about Hank Williams, August the 30th, 1949. He goes into Herzog studio in Cincinnati to record one of the all time great country hits. Um, I'm so lonesome. I could cry. And I mean, this, what a song that the influence that this song has had, it can't be understated. Absolutely. And I think, I think Tony, when you say that we kind of went outside the lines, I think it's important to acknowledge the influence that Hank Williams had on the artists, you know, rock and roll artists, certainly the rockabilly, but certainly the Beatles. I mean, we talked before we started recording Elvis Presley, Bob Dylan, Phil Oaks. I mean, it's, it's it, the water boys, name check him, you know. So he had a, a massive influence beyond country. He had, he was um, a genius. I'm a huge Hank fan. Are you a Hank, Hank man? I am a Hank Williams fan. Uh, more, I appreciate him when I hear all of his songs that are covered by other people. We, of course, did mention Elvis Presley's for incredible version of this song, but people like Nora Jones, for instance, who... She does a great job with his tunes, doesn't she? She does. She does. But, you know, this song itself, Dylan, in his autobiography, even wrote, uh, at a young age, I identified with him. I didn't have to experience anything that Hank did to know what he was singing about. I'd never heard of Robin Weep, but I could imagine it, and it made me sad. And I, I think that sums it up. I mean, I, it's a great song. Yeah. I mean, this is the original Hurtin' song, right? Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. This, de- this defines, I mean, I'm so lonesome I could cry. And, you know, Tony, I've heard different interpretations about what the song is about. And one of the interpretations I read, and I, I didn't put this in the notes, but it's one of them is that Hank is singing to God. 
that he's feeling that God's forsaken him for whatever reason. I think oh. he was one of his low times. But you can read into the song so many ways. It's 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 one of those songs that you know even Elvis doing it, it it just transcends so many levels, right? Oh, for sure. And you look at Hank Williams' uh, biography, right? I mean, back pain, alcohol, alcoholism, prescription drug abuse, uh, compromised health. You know, got divorced. He was married to a singer named Billie Jean Horton. Um, he was dismissed by the Grand Ole Opry. I had no idea that that had happened, but dismissed. They kicked he, him out. They yeah. kicked him out, yeah. Which is yeah. amazing. A guy like Hank Williams being kicked kicked out of the Grand Ole Opry. Um, heart failure, he died I mean, at 29 years old, too. Isn't that incredible? I know. And I, 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 must, I must do full disclosure. I used one of Hank Williams' lines because um, he had severe back pain from spina bifida. And he, he was drunk one night and he fell into a, a ditch. And he gets to the hospital <laughs> and he says to the doctor, either cure me or kill me, but I can't live like this. <laughs> oh, which is actually is a fantastic line. Did you use that? <laughs> I did. With him. Just because, you know, as you know, I have a bad hip. And I went to the, uh, when I went to the doctor, I said, like, either cure me or kill me, but I can't live like this. And I thought, the doctor, here you go, Hank, I have to quote you. Now, did the doctor pick up on the reference or not? No. <laughs> <laughs> But um, but uh, yeah, it, it he had he lived hard in a very very short time. It's he's almost the twenty seven club. But you look at his body of work oh. is astounding. What he put out in those, I guess he was recording for what twelve years, not even ten years. Just incredible work. And and um, thank goodness we recorded it. I mean, thank goodness that um, you know they had the the capabilities of recording it and. And thank goodness the DJ flipped the record over because this was not the A side of the the original single or seventy eight. Uh, the the A side was actually my bucket's got a hole in it, which is a you know a bit more up tempo and a bit more funny and all that kind of stuff. But DJs across America, um, and again this is going back to the time before we have corporate radio, which we have now, and DJs felt the comfort of just deciding I like the B side better. Well, it, it I mean, just grabs you, know. you, doesn't it? Right. As soon as you hear that song, I mean, you listen to those lyrics, like you were saying, Dylan saying like a Robin weeping and oh, the lyrics are incredible. Oh, it's poetry. It's absolute poetry. And, and Rolling Stone magazine, um, listed it at number 111 of the 500 greatest songs of all time. And they put it at the number three of the country songs, but it's the oldest song on the list. Cause it's like me, very old. <laughs> <laughs> now you know what i got asked yesterday i was at where i can't remember where i was but uh i got asked if i qualified for a senior's discount and i was like oh. you don't you don't look like a senior and I, I cannot I believe that you don't you don't look anywhere near i mean i i do but you don't like you look, you look <laughs> <laughs> anyway i should have did just you, said, did you yes. say yes did you, did, i should have said yes because i would have got 30 percent off <laughs> man <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if they're asking, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you picked, uh, for the charts here, you picked the top five Billboard folk, country, and Western singles. So folk was mixed in with the uh, country and Western charts back then? Yeah, when you look at the original magazine, it actually says folk, and in brackets, includes country and Western. We don't use that term anymore, right? Country and Western? No, no. Well, that was the old joke. Do you remember that? Like, People, you know, the joke said, uh, there's only two types of music I hate, country and Western. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that. 
Like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to steal that. <laughs> so, yeah, they had the top five, and, and um, not surprising, you know, Hank figure, figures in it, but number five is Ernest Tubb. Uh, I was heartbroken. He had a record store in Nashville, and my my dream was to have gone to that record store because it's, it's a I don't know if you went when you were in Nashville, but it was a Ernest Tubbs record store and everybody who's anybody played there. Um, no, I didn't go but, there when I was there because I was supervising kids. Right. So I spent most of my of time left. down on, on the, in the bars, checking out the music. It was great. With the kids. <laughs> yeah. During the day, they're welcome in. They can, no, they, just yeah, that's right. <laughs> It was just the way you said that. I was supervising kids, so we spent most of the time in bars. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's my bucket list, my bucket list. Um, so Ernest Tubb slipping away, slipping around. Sorry, number four, Wayne Rainey, 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 Wayne. Okay, let me try that again. Wayne Rainey, terrible name. I love this title. Why don't you haul off and love me? But you know what? Country music certainly takes the crown for the best song titles, don't they? Uh, th- without a doubt, without a doubt, some of them are just. And there was this really weird subgenre of country music in the late fifties, and it, it, songs like "Psycho" and really weird songs. But um, another topic for another day. Number three, Hank Williams and his Drifting Cowboys, "Wedding Bells." Number two, Hank Williams and his Drifting Cowboys, "Lovesick Blues." Ooh, I love that. That little yodel he does. Yeah. And number one, <laughs> again. I love this title. Eddie Arnold, I'm throwing rice at the girl I love. <laughs> well, and you know what? There's a big connection to Elvis here too, because um, a few years after this comes out, what's this? 49, right? It's not long yeah. after the five years after this comes out that Elvis starts coming onto the country's consciousness. And I mean, he was touring as he was labeled as a country artist, right? Very influenced mm-hmm. by people like Eddie Arnold and Hank Williams. So there you go. And, and, and you could see Eddie Arnold's influence and he was on Eddie Arnold's Eddie Arnold and Elvis shared RCA records. So, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of crossover and I think Elvis had that. I mean, in the sixties when he went back to country and he was doing things like Kentucky rain and, and suspicious minds, which was country ish. I, I really like his stuff like that. I love his cover of uh, Bill Monroe's blue moon over Kentucky. Oh, me too. Yeah. It's fantastic. Love that. Now, what do you say we're going to uh, pop ahead to August the 30th, 2014, and we're going to go to London, and we're going to be talking about an artist who you really, really love and who I have come to love since meeting you. So uh, (laughs) let's do this, and we'll be right back. Tony, you're so right. I do love, and I mean love, Kate Bush. And um, I've been a fan of hers for forever, it seems. And she she has an interesting career because she keeps coming back on the charts without recording anything new, which is kind of interesting. And this happened in 2014, where she had announced um, a series of live shows in London. And because of that announcement, um, all of her albums basically... Uh, went back on the charts, which was the she because she was the first woman artist to have eight albums in the UK charts at the same time, and then two of those albums made the top ten. And she 
almost tied the Beatles, who had, well, not tied, but the Beatles had 11 in 2009, and Elvis had 12 in the top 40 after his death in 1977. So she she joined an elite group here, Elvis, the Beatles, and Kate Bush, in, in the UK anyways. But um, you've, you've come to like her, her music, eh? I love her music. And, you know... She keeps coming back, but she didn't, she doesn't come back with, you know, a little bit of a splash. It is a humongous splash every time she comes back into the discussion. And that's, that's what's so cool about her is because now, uh, of course, she's huge again because of uh, running up that hill is on that uh, Stranger Things show, which I haven't seen season four of that yet. But how, how cool is that, that, you know, teenagers are listening to Kate Bush right now? But I was thinking about this this morning before we, we, we got on together, and I thought to myself, this speaks, and I'm not a fan of Adele. I'm not a fan of Taylor Swift. I admire their talent. Their music doesn't move me. But I thought the fact that Kate Bush went into the American, let me stress this, the American top 10 for the first time in her career, yeah, Stranger Things had a lot to do with it, but kids cottoned on to something here. They, I think what's missing in current music is that strong melody, um, good production. I mean, I, I think kids are kind of sick of um, the same old, same old, and this really stands out. I mean, the, the, the synthesizer, and, and um, I think there's a there's a need to to have these kinds of songs back again, if you know what I mean. Well, Kate Bush's music is also, I mean, I, I always think art, right? It's not just a mm-hmm. song. It's it, She packages everything with it. When you look at the videos that she did, right? She was big into the dance and, and the visuals and so I think you're right. I think that might be speaking to teenagers. I mean, the show certainly helped, but the fact that you've got, like you say, music that's not auto-tuned. Auto-tuned, that was the word I was looking for, yeah. Yeah, you know, not using the same set of loops that anybody can pull up in GarageBand and stuff like that. It, uh, I mean, good good on the kids for, for showing some good taste in, in well, a sea of mediocrity, yeah. you know? Well, look at Spotify. Spotify streams for running up that hill from May increased by nine, almost ten thousand percent in the U.S. alone. Yeah, I mean, that's, 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 that, that's an that's astronomical. Like it's it's almost you know if you told me that I wouldn't I may not believe you, but it's it's you look at the if I looked at, I looked at the the other day because I put it in the, the playlist and it's almost at a billion streams now. But we're mm-hmm. at you know pre May it was at about. To 100 million it just keeps growing so yeah that's but, incredible because i think the the billion stream mark i think weren't uh hall and oats the first artist across yeah. that that mark i love hall and, i love yeah i love hall and oats me too me too i hope we can do a but story to, on them sometime actually oh sooner than later but you know to your point about her being a visual artist when i mentioned that she announced this this residency in london and it was 22 concerts, which sold out in about five minutes. Mm-hmm. And it, it was called Before the Dawn, and it was multimedia. It had dancers, puppets, shadow work, mask work, uh, 3D animation, an illusionist. And she spent three days in a flotation tank for filmed scenes that were played during the performance. And she had a, the novelist, David Mitchell, actually write dialogue for the – so it wasn't a concert. I mean, I think if you think of it as a concert, it wasn't. And I, I've got the live album, and it really does. It's a story. It's a. It's based on the Ninth Wave, which is on side two of her Hounds of Love album. And 
I don't know if you've seen the video of her and Dream of Sheep when she's in the water. In yes, the yes. That beautiful. I just, I, I love her so much. <laughs> oh, well, she's, she's an original, right? I, yeah, she is. She's totally an original. Um, but yeah, so she's back again. And and now, listen, I would love her to to do some new music. I'm I'm dying for her to do something new. But uh, there was a song I always thought you would like on her um, Ariel album called Pie, where the whole song is just the numbers for you know three point one four. Oh, really? Whatever. Yeah, the whole song. <laughs> <laughs> all the numbers it's like wow <laughs> i gotta check that out it's, i should put that on the playlist i'll yeah, put it on the should. playlist okay i will <laughs> now uh, let, let's talk charts here you ventured into the top five usa albums the uh, top five albums in the usa so uh, what was on in 2014 yeah. here well i figured i'd do the u.s because you know in england it was it was the story was kate bush in america the story was a great soundtrack. But number oh, five yeah. was Troy Sivan with Trex uh, in EP. Number four was the Gaslight Anthem, Get Hurt. I've seen the Gaslight Anthem, and they're quite good live. Oh, yeah? Okay. They are. They're really, they're kind of 60-ish. Could, do you want to build a snowman, Tony? Um, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, I have never seen this film, I, I'm proud to say. But you must have heard the music when you're as a teacher. Yes, yes, endlessly. <laughs> Of course, we're talking about the soundtrack to Frozen. Can you, I'm rolling which, my uh, eyes like uh, some of my students right now here, our former students. Yeah. <laughs> I saw the film. I'm, it's it's uh, it's great. Um, number two <laughs> is a compilation album called Now Fifty One, and number one is a really a really cool soundtrack album for Garden Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, it's called Mixtape Volume One, and it's I don't know if you've heard the album, but it's, it's got amazing. It is. It, it's it's a phenomenal album. I actually put two tracks off that album onto the playlist because I couldn't decide because it's got ELO and George Harrison. Oh, well, I got to tell you, at the school, because when this movie came out, this was perfect for me introducing some of these songs to the kids in the stage band. You know, I think we did mm -hmm. uh, uh, a couple of songs by 10CC there. I mean, it's, it's great music. And again, that was the cool thing. It's like the Kate Bush thing, right? Kids were discovering... Um, I mean, that was a big discovery was George Harrison's My Sweet Lord went back up the charts because of that film. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, all of a sudden kids were going, hey, this is a cool song. I Again, I'm going to go back to, I'm going to sound like an old man. I'm going to rant for a second. But you and I grew up at a time when radio played everything. You would hear an oldie. You'd hear a new one. You'd hear yep. this, that. With radio so compartmentalized now, where an, a, a radio station playing the current top 40 wouldn't even think of playing anything pre-April of this year, um, it, it, it robs kids of, a, of, a, of an incredible amount of music, unless they have parents like you and me who play it around the house. So I just I think things like the Guardian of the Galaxy soundtrack really help kids understand there's music pre-Justin Bieber. Thank goodness. Oh, yeah, exactly. Now, what do you say <laughs> we stay in London and we'll go to August 31st and we'll back it up to... 2006 and you know what we haven't listened to a classic commercial in a while on this show so i'm going to put one in here i'll find one when i edit okay. the show later today and we will be right back folks there's a happy new dance that is sweeping the nation it's called the Plymouth polka it's a dance full of joy for the whole population i mean the Plymouth polka 
So, Aaron, the Times in London ran a story back on August 31st, 2006, and they were talking about the demands of rock stars when they were on tour. Before we get to some of these demands, uh, and, and we'll talk about why rock stars make these demands as well. Uh, if you were a rock star and you were on tour, what would you demand? Like, what would you want maybe in the dressing room or do you have, a, do you have anything that comes to mind? Hmm. That's it. Wow. I wasn't expecting that question. Uh, what about you? I'll, I'll think about it. What would you, what would you, what would your number one demand be? My number one demand again, I think, I don't know. I, I probably want a really good plate of pasta back there waiting for me or something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking that too, but um, I might fall asleep afterwards. No, um, I, you know, for me, I, I can tell you one thing for me would be ice cold water. I, I like my, I hate lukewarm water. So okay. if you're going to have water for me, it doesn't have to be sparkling water, it be just it's tap be water, but ice, ice cubes in it. Okay, ice there cold. you go. Now, Listen to some of these demands. And of course, we haven't talked about Ozzy on this show. Uh, Where's Ozzy been? He's got a new album out, Tony. Yes, yes. So Ozzy, here is his, Ah. uh, the rider on his contract. So these things, these demands are called riders. And we'll talk about why they're called riders in a minute. And we'll talk about also why these things are in contracts, because it's not what people always think, you know. Um, So Ozzy Osbourne, when he performs, he insists that an eye, ear, nose, and throat doctor be at each venue. So that's that's a little different, isn't it? Well, I guess he just wants to make sure he's alive. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sorry, Ozzy, I love you, but... <laughs> but... But let's go over some of the other ones here. The Beach Boys, it was, they required a, a licensed masseur, or masseuse, mm-hmm. or whatever you call it. Uh, yep. Meatloaf, a mask and one small tank of oxygen. That, that's a weird one, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Now, why don't you go over a few of the others here? Okay. David Bowie, he wanted his room. <laughs> this is so funny. It must be between 14 Celsius and 18 Celsius. That's cold. That's I thought so too. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because I don't know if you've ever seen, he did an album called David is Live. And years later after the album came out, David Bowie said, I'm looking at the cover and the title should have been David is live in name only because he said he looks so pale and and, and deathly. Yeah. I don't know, David. Keep it at fourteen and eighteen, you know. Um, Paul McCartney must have a large arrangement of white Casablanca lilies in his dressing room. And I'm going to tell you why that is very quickly. Yeah, Lil- lilies very important for Paul. And if you look at a lot of his album covers, you're going to see the word lily hidden. And the reason lily is there, it stands for Linda. I love you. Oh, lovely. there you go. Isn't that lovely? That is very romantic. It is. And Mick Jagger, I'm sorry, I find this really funny. He has to have an onstage auto cue with the lyrics, but also. Yeah. <laughs> this is fantastic. This is, this is great. It has to tell him the name of the city in which he's performing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm speechless. Can you imagine? Oh, Cincinnati. Oh, sorry. Cleveland. <laughs> Yeah, no, I would think that would be more something for Ozzy, but that's fantastic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but now, what makes me laugh is there's a Simpsons episode with Mick Jagger, and he says, it's very important to say, whatever town you're in, that you rock the hardest. I'm thinking to myself, I wonder if he adds that to the auto cue. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Now, you remember these were really in the news 
uh, which band was it? Was it Van Halen who were, who you had to have all the red M&Ms picked out or whatever? Was that, was that, do you remember it, that? It was Van Halen and it, yeah, it was, they had specific colors of M&Ms. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, and, and a lot of people looked at that and said, oh, rock star, you know, ridiculous demands. Like, but these things, they're called writers and, and a writer, it's, it specifies an artist's requirement when you're performing at a venue. And I mean, they can, a writer can cover anything, right? It can cover hospitality, safety, technical needs, cancellation policies, um, excluding certain colors of M&Ms, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um and, and where did that word, I, I saw in your notes, you found out where the word writer comes from, right? So where does that come from? Well, like, apparently it, it's it's something that's tacked on or rides on the original agreement. And that's how it got its name is it, it's kind of like, a this is writing because you everyone signs a contract, like you have, yeah. you're going to tour, you're going to sign a contract. But I, and some of them are very outlandish. I know Mariah Carey, for example, her, her writers are just insane. And so is Beyonce, by the way. Now, did you know uh, why artists do that, though? Like, I, I did some, uh, not uh, a long time ago, because I was so interested on the red M&M story. I did some <laughs> reading on that, uh, why artists do that stuff. And and they do it to make sure that the promoter, the booking agent, actually reads the contract. And so... Is that, is that right? Yes, that's one of, the, one of the reasons artists do this. And sometimes they'll put outlandish ones in just to make sure that the uh, person who's booking or promoting the show reads the contract and so it gives them an out because it's in the uh, contract right so it always gives them that back door out if they need it so pretty interesting it's very and, and i could see why they would do that for that reason like it, it it makes sense because you know i think a lot of managers and promoters uh get jaded and do they really pay attention to the contract that's a good point i never thought of that that's yeah. interesting you know do you remember the oh. uh, the backstage scene from Spinal Tap when he's trying to fold the sandwiches and everything? And <laughs> oh my gosh! And, and, and it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit on the little bread. <laughs> see, and that that there, folks. If you if you find that scene in Spinal Tap, you will then see the need for writers so that you don't ever put yourself in a situation where you've got large meat and tiny bread. The the other thing they should have put in their writer was how to get to the stage. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> when they're walking around and they can't find the stage, it's one of the funny, and they keep hitting the same janitor. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, we're uh, laughing a lot this episode. That's awesome. It's good. It's good to laugh. We have we need good laughs. Yeah, for sure. Now you uh, you swung over here for the charts to the oh I love this one to the top five concert grosses. Uh, this is according to Billboard. I, I'm curious in 2006 who was uh, yeah making it's the bizarre. big money. It's very bizarre. And actually, it was, so it was, it was that week. So that week, the big concert draws were Take That with Pussycat Dolls at the RDS Arena in Dublin. And they was 1.9 million. By the way, Tony, I saw a concert in, in Dublin. I saw Madness and okay. Squeeze. But 21,000 crazy Irishmen. I've never seen a I mean, it was like unlike any concert I've ever seen, only because the audience knew every word to every song. It was oh, wow. very bizarre. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. Number four, Dave Matthews Band with Government Mule and Soul Live, New England Dodge Music Theater in Hartford, Connecticut. Again, about 1.9 mil. Are you a Dave Matthews fan? No. Uh, <laughs> the pause was the best. The pause was the best. I, I, Dave Matthews is just, I'm going to piss a lot of people off, I'm sure. He's so overrated. That's just my opinion. 
Sorry, uh, I folks. share it. So I'm with you. I'm not arguing. And and you know speaking what? of overrated, yeah. Come speaking on. of overrated and artists that I can't stand, go ahead. Number three here, <laughs> <laughs> she who bags her chest a lot, Celine Dion. Uh, Caesar's Palace. She made 2.1 million that week, or maybe that afternoon. Who knows? Number two is Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> like it's just like what? Okay, Cirque du Soleil and their Delirium show, which was in Cleveland. Hello, Cleveland. And number one was Tim McGraw and Faith Hill, lovely married couple mm-hmm. in Seattle, 3.4 mil. Can I tell you a quick Tim McGraw story? Uh, sure. Okay. So when I was in Nashville with um, on the band tour with the high school students, we went into one, uh, I, I'm trying to remember the name of the club, and they were telling us that that was where Tim McGraw played regularly. And um, he had made the decision because he wasn't getting signed. He had made the decision that he was going to leave the business uh, in about two weeks. And he was just so frustrated and he ended up getting signed. So isn't that wild? In that two week period. Yeah. In that two week period. And he comes back to that venue every so often just to play. He'll just show up and play, you know, as a little uh, show of gratitude, but uh, he, he almost left the business because he was getting really, really discouraged. So, you know, keep at it folks, because you never know. Yeah. You never, you just that when you give up and that next day could have been, well, he's and actually, you know, he's not a bad actor either. I've seen a few of his films. His acting isn't bad. I'm not a big fan of his music, but I don't hate it either. You know what I mean? Like no, it's, exactly. It's neither here nor there, but yeah. Now, guess what time it is? It is uh, from Memphis to Merseyside time. And we're hey. going to be talking about Elvis this week. We've got a couple of stories, one involving Vancouver and then a pretty interesting chart. Uh, accomplishment as well. So stick around, folks. We're going to do our From Memphis to Merseyside moment, and we'll be back in a minute. So, Tony, my wife grew up in Vancouver, which is famous for a second-rate hockey team. Just kidding, folks. Just kidding. Um, but also it's famous because a certain artist played there and he didn't play out of, um, I think he only played out of America three times and that would be Elvis. So over to you about this story. Yeah, this is a great story. So we're talking about Vancouver. This is August 31st, 1957. One of those rare occasions when Elvis Presley appeared outside of the United States and he played at Empire Stadium in Vancouver. That stadium, by the way, have you ever seen the view? Have you ever seen oh, pictures yeah. of that with the mountains behind Beautiful. it? Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah, it's just stunning. Stunning, yeah. So this would also be his last out-of-country appearance in 1957, which is wild. Um, we'll get into that in a minute, but 26,000 fans attended the show. and listen Tony, to these, I don't know if I could afford the tickets. Yeah, look, listen to these prices, folks. 1957, <laughs> $1.50. This is Canadian, I'm assuming. $1.50. <laughs> Two fifty and three fifty. So for you know three fifty, you got to sit in the nice seats and see Elvis Presley at Empire Stadium in Vancouver. But I can't believe that was the last time he ever left the country, and that was, of course, all due to Colonel Tom Parker's uh, insistence. He just did not want Elvis leaving the states purely for selfish reasons, I might add, and very sad. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, again, it's a what would have happened if. And I wonder what would have happened if Elvis had been able to tour Europe, Australia, Japan. He would have he would have invented Stadium Rock. I mean, it was the Beatles who finally did it. But he would have. I mean, they're crazy about him over in Europe and Japan. So it's just so sad. It is so sad. Now I read a story this year. Did you ever hear this? Because you know, 
Elvis never went over to the UK either, right? Like, and, and he would have been, he's huge in the UK, but did you huge. see that? Did you see that story uh, this year that they actually found out that he did actually go to the UK behind uh, Tom Parker's back? He just went in disguise and he spent a day in London. Did you see that earlier yeah. this year? I, I thought that was a very interesting story. And it's interesting that it takes this long for it to come out. Yeah. So, I mean, so he actually did make it over to London, who was incognito, but so sad that he couldn't perform. And, and uh, you know, yeah, when, well, the film deals with that a lot about the selfishness of Tom Parker. I mean, it's, I, I don't want to get into that here, but, it, you know, it would have been something else had he been able to, to get out of the country well, and perform. And he, he, I don't want to say he thrived on it, but I was just watching a documentary on, on, there was a whole day where they're showing Elvis movies here on TCM. And you watch him, even in the seventies, he really thrived on, on being on stage. He Mm -hmm. had a good time. I mean, okay, not every show, but I mean, he really, really enjoyed performing. He was a bit of a ham, you know? Oh, without question. And, uh. I I love seeing the footage from the seventies when he's in Vegas and and it would have been amazing to see what he would have done, you know, playing at uh, a big stadium in London or going over to Germany to play or would it would have been incredible. I think he might even still be around. Like you look at the, you know, Linda who's in Dublin, just bought tickets to see Bob Dylan in Dublin. He's 81 Mm -hmm. and he's still cheering, you know? So well, I, I hate to break it to you, uh, Aaron, but Elvis is still around. Doesn't he live in Tweed, Ontario? <laughs> I'm sorry. I totally forgot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Where is my mind? Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe on the way to coming visit, I'll stop in Tweed and see if we can find him. That's you know? right. I'm, you know, I'm surprised uh, that that rumor still sticks around, but it's a good one. It's uh, hilarious. It's a good one. It's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah. Now, but, uh, I... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yep. I was just going to say 20 years to the day in 77, something with Elvis, right? Yeah. This was the aside that I was talking about. Um, Of course, Elvis passed away on August 16th, 1977, but the month after his death. So this is September 3rd, 1977. I I can't get over this. This is the top 100 charts in the UK. Um, He had, well, the number ones for both for the albums and the yeah. singles, but he had, this is staggering folks. Uh, I think we should ring the bell for this. This is incredible. I think so. I think uh, so. 27 albums, a quarter of the top 100 was Elvis Presley, 27 albums and nine singles. And Moody blue was number one for albums and way down was number one on the singles chart. And that put him equal with the Beatles in amassing 17 number one hits. So that's pretty incredible. Well, and he, he actually passed the Beatles because um, a few years later, he would have a number one hit with A Little Less Conversation. Oh, yeah, and, that's um, right. So he actually, and you know what? If anyone's going to surpass the Beatles, I'm okay with it being Elvis. Don't even talk to me about Drake. Like, yeah, sorry, that doesn't count in my opinion. No, it doesn't count. It's not, no. it's not the same thing. No, this is, this is people going out in record stores in 1977, physically buying cassettes and albums, and Elvis had uh, more than a quarter, 27 albums in the top 100. <laughs> Unbelievable. Just, yeah. Wow. Um, but, but but you know what? Even being in England last week or two weeks ago and in Ireland, Tony, when I tell you that Elvis is still king, I mean, he's king. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just people wear Elvis t-shirts. You go into a pub at lunch, you're guaranteed to hear Elvis. I heard Moody Blue four times there. They play oh, that wow. song a lot. Yeah, a lot. It's a good song. Good mm-hmm. song. 
Now, uh, you pick, you picked a special chart for this too, in honor of this story. And this is, this is a great one. So what'd you pick? I just thought it was funny to see what was in the top five in the UK at the time. So bear in mind, 27 albums are Elvis, but there's a lot of your favorites in the top five. Number five is a, a great album by Stevie Wonder, Fulfilling This First Finales. Number four is Eric Clapton, 461 Ocean Boulevard. Three, The Carpenters, The Singles. <laughs> Typo, I said 1968 <laughs> to 1973. <laughs> wow. Number two was an album called Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield. Oh, and yeah. number one, number one, one of my all-time favorite albums, Band on the Run by Paul McCartney and Wings. Yeah, that's a classic. Yeah. So so there you have it, folks. There is road trip number 66 all 66. done. We can Route wrap 66, it up. 66, man. Yep, we can wrap it up and put a bow on it. And uh, wow, I can't believe we're at 66 here and heading to 67 next week. And wow, you know, we'll record uh, 67 next week virtually, but you're coming to see me next weekend. So I am very excited. Can't wait. Yeah, we'll do 68 live and in person, which will be so exciting. And then we're going to make plans to go to Detroit soon. So well, we you go bet. hang out at the Maritime Museum. And you're retiring soon, so that'll make both of us retired, wow. guys. You know, I'm sitting here uh, watching all the teachers pull into the parking lot at the uh, <laughs> high school down the road, and I got to say, I, I don't miss it. I'm I'm happy to be retired here. So, Well, you know, I, I keep getting these invitations for meetings that take place from October on, and I just keep decline, decline, decline. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, thank you. No, no, I'm not going to be here. Thanks. Well, big thanks as always to Rick Denis for providing the music for today's episode. And even bigger thanks to all of you who allow us into your headphones every week. Keep on listening, keep on sharing, and keep on providing us with feedback because we love it. And Aaron, when the man is getting you down, what do you do? More than ever, you got to keep on rocking because that's basically it. We will see you next time, folks. <laughs>